Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. In the last episode, I had discovered Buddhism and started visiting Zen centers in Austin, Texas. Soon I was ready for my first Sashin, a Zen meditation retreat. This was at the rustic Southern Dharma Center in the mountains of North Carolina, which was led by Reverend Shohaku Okamura, a Japanese master, a year older than myself, who was later to become a major influence in my understanding of Buddhism. The stillness, the regularity of the heavy bells calling us to the Zendo meditation hall and the chime that began and ended zazen, zen meditation, the smell of incense, the many robes, and the many hours of deepening concentration all spoke of a world apart. During zazen, we could schedule dokusan, private, brief interviews with the teacher to discuss practice. My corporate job allowed me a certain amount of vacation time each year, and I began to spend it all in Sashin, a couple of times each year. The next spring, I traveled to the San Francisco Zen Center, in particular to Green Gulch Farm, above the ocean in Marin County, to sit a Sashin led by Reverend Norman Fisher. By now, the year was maybe... 1998, maybe 1999. This session was ritually far more elaborate in form than anything I thought was possible, even among Catholics or Russian Orthodoxists. In fact, I would suffer cultural shock for the next seven days in silence since it was a silent retreat, but I was resolved to stick it out. Shortly after arriving at this particular session, The evening before it actually started, newbies were instructed in the fine art of orioki. Orioki involves a ritual process of receiving and eating meals and of cleaning one's bowls and utensils, all in the zendo seated in meditation posture. In unison, we practitioners opened our bowls, initially wrapped in cloth, placing wrapping cloth, three bowls, chopsticks, spoon, setsu, which is a cloth-tipped bowl scraper, wiping cloth, lap cloth, and utensil bag in their designated places, each cloth opened by grasping proper corners with proper fingers and everything properly oriented. After a series of chants, we receive food brought by servers and ladled into bowls, with an exchange of proper bows before and after as the server moves down the row. And with the use of hand signals, I communicate the amount offered. After all are served, we chant. At designated phrases, we place the spoon at the proper 12 o'clock position in the first bowl, 
and then the chopsticks at a proper angle onto the rim of the second bowl, and then lifted the first bowl to face level to begin proper eating. At the conclusion of the meal, we cleaned the bowls with the setsu, depositing remnants in mouth, proceeding in proper bowl order, then receive hot water from the servers in the first bowl, exchanging bows as before. We then cleaned the bowls once again with hot water and setsu, drying each bowl in turn after pouring remaining water into the next bowl and finally wrap all of the cloths, utensils, and bowls back up, each cloth folded to specification, each component in its exact place, and tie the bundle to the proper state it was in to begin, as if the meal had never happened. Woo! I interjected repeatedly to myself during the course of that week. I'm not finished. There were precise ways to enter the zendo, for instance, leading with the right foot, not with the left, to hold the hands as we walked to our cushions to bow towards those seated in our row, then to those in the remaining rows, taking care to turn clockwise, then to sit backwards on our zafus and spin around to face the wall. For lecture, we continued to sit cross-legged, not to raise our knees to our chins if we could stand it. I longed for my school days when not throwing spitballs or passing messages qualified me as proper. Service was a complex affair with many bows led by Fisher Roshi, in the role of, I would later learn, Doshi, who offered incense initially with the help of an attendant, a Jisha, and who also at precise points in the chants would make additional bows or approach the altar to offer additional incense. We, in the meantime, held our chant books in a certain way and were to chant with energy. Behavior outside the zenda was also similarly regulated. We did not break silence but bowed upon encountering each other. We could make ourselves tea but had to sit, not stand, while we drank it and so on. Each morning at the beginning of service, we chanted something I had not heard before, but which moved me quite inexplicably. In fact, my eyes would tear up and I would get a lump in my throat every time we would intone, All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. It was as if my whole twisted past, the mistakes I had made, the people I had hurt, the opportunities and energy I had squandered, extending back through my memory of the present life into an unfathomable, remote past beyond memory, loomed menacingly behind me, but as if a door had been opened before me, that permitted escape from its marching forward momentum. I had only to acknowledge what had been driving me forward thus far. Most of the participants wore robes, and each of those that did seemed to belong to one of two classes, with hair and without hair. 
the robes of those with hair seemed rarely to fit right and seemed to be placed over regular American t-shirts, sweaters, and so on. The robes of the hairless were clearly tailored and included an extra long cloth that went over the left shoulder, draping elegantly almost to the floor, and other equally exotic but less visible layers. These were the robes of the priests. The priests had the weird habit of putting on their outer robes only after the first periods of zazen in the morning, and then only after placing the still-folded robes on their bald heads and chanting together something very exotic about fields and emptiness. Of the hairless, Fisher Roshi seemed to be unique in that his robes were brown rather than black. A minority had no robes, and of these, I seemed to be the lone person in the session who had not known to wear black or highly subdued colors. I wore things like green or blue, thankfully, not yellow or orange. And fortunately, I was later relieved to see that, digging deeper into their suitcases during the week in search of a change of clothing, other robeless participants came up with increasingly brighter colors eventually to rival or surpass my own. This was amazing to me. Why would people do all this? This was not at all like the Zen described so vividly and accurately by Alan Watts, not like real Zen. It wasn't even cool, and it entailed a lot of bother and stress. And this was on top of the agonizing pains in my knees and back from the unaccustomed long hours of sitting for seven days. I was already suffering from Zendo stress disorder, though I had to admit that all in all the retreat was a powerful experience, slowly moving through a still, crystallized world in which the only sound was that of my own nettled thoughts quieter and quieter, day by day. I had arranged for my brother Arthur to pick me up at the end of the retreat. He lived about 40 miles north, along the Pacific coast. He pulled up dutifully into the parking lot in his pickup truck and leaned out the window, a bear of a man with a beard and a cigar in his mouth with no discernible interest in my spiritual path whatever, he talked and joked as incessantly as always as we drove into San Francisco to pick up our mother and then eat at his favorite steakhouse. I was a vegetarian. Arthur was such a marked contrast to the retreat. I imagine that whatever I had attained during the previous week was undone by the time we had crossed the Golden Gate Bridge. Over this period, I read and studied intently, procuring and reading one or two books a week at first, in spite of the workload in my high-tech job. I also established a relentless personal meditation practice, and once I had started, 
would not miss a single day of meditation for the next five and a half years. I kept track until realizing I was getting attached to my record and intentionally disrupted it for a day. Having learned many years before to follow the breath, I was trying to practice shikantaza, the practice of just sitting with an upright posture and full awareness with no object of meditation more specific than the mind itself. Shikantaza had given me headaches at first, but quickly became the foundation of my practice. I became so relentless in my practice that my boss at work would be taken aback that I would abandon the others as they continued pounding out code for the next morning's demo, and I would just go and sit. I had been a meditator for many years, though I had never before applied myself so intensely. What I would later recognize as transformational is the meeting of the serene clarity of meditation with the long process of self-investigation, reflection. One does not stick with Buddhist practice if it is not doing any good, any more than one would stick with a diet or a workout program without manifesting visible results. Specific results in the mind, however, are difficult to quantify and as such might well be illusory. As I developed a greater awareness of my own mind, I almost never liked what I found there. I discovered, for instance, that I was remorselessly judgmental. I had never thought of this as a characteristic I had to worry about, but there it was. I had only to look at someone, and the judgment was set off. Ne'er-do-well nerd, misguided moron, confused cad. Almost always something negative, unless that someone happened to be a bonny babe. Then it occurred to me to ask, how can I possibly know so much about this person? And the answer would come back, it's the shoes, or he talks too much. My judgmental mind embarrassed me, and as embarrassment shattered my judgmental mind, both began to fade together. Because I later would recall my earlier observations of a judgmental mind, this particular transformation became somewhat quantifiable and would give me an early gratifying sense that this Zen stuff really works. Something else began weighing on me more than ever in these years, my livelihood. During most of this time, I was working at a digital technology think tank, MCC, uncomfortably because this work primarily had Department of Defense money behind it. I began seriously to question the benefit of my livelihood to the world at large. I began more than ever to feel, I want no part of this. That was the second shift. A teaching that also hit home during this period was the most uniquely Buddhist teaching of all, and one that most serious students of Buddhism grapple with for years before barely getting the smallest whiff 
of what it might mean. This was the teaching of non-self, which in Zen is often subsumed under emptiness, making the point that we do not exist in anything like the way we think we do, which is independent of things that endure with the same identity, if not forever, then at least for a while. Early Chinese Zen master Pai Ching summarized this as follows. All things never say that they are empty, nor do they say that they are form. They also do not say that they are right or wrong, pure or impure. Neither is there any mind to bind anyone. It is only that people themselves create false attachments, thereby giving rise to all kinds of understanding, creating various views, desires, and fears. Just realize that all things are not created by themselves. They all come into existence only because of a single false thought that wrongly attaches to appearances. If one perceives that the mind and phenomena do not mutually reach each other, then one is liberated at that very spot. All things are calm and extinct as they are. As a teenager, I had had an experience that was still vivid in my mind, the sense that every part and process of me seemed to be present as usual, including the breathing, the walking, and the thinking, but that now they were collaborating on their own without me. Decisions were made, but they were not my decisions, only additional disembodied processes. I was simply nowhere to be found. The teaching of non-self told me what it was I had seen, and finally, after all these years, assured me that it was okay. But I knew I was still far from being liberated at that very place. For instance, immediately after enjoying zazen with others, I would rub my eyes and stretch my limbs, and there that sense of self would be wanting others to see that I had had a uniquely deep zazen experience, making me take an extra long time to return to reality. And group discussion after I would make a remark, and there that little guy was, wanting me to be more insightful than anyone else, making me use phrases like uh, nuanced epistemic bifurcation. In the presence of an attractive woman, he would simply go crazy, making me say things I could scarcely follow nor remember. I named that sense of self affectionately Little Johnny, and Little Johnny intruded repeatedly, except when he didn't. I became adept at recognizing the little guy as he slipped in and out. He had me written all over him and personal advantage tattooed across his forehead. The repeated awareness of little Johnny was a final measurable shift that I can attribute to Buddhist practice and understanding. This gave me a lot of confidence that I was on the right track. 
All three shifts, it should be noted, entail discomfort in the form of a nagging awareness that had not been there in such a pronounced form before. However, this was good because it helped to dispel the notion that my practice was about bliss, even though the stillness of Zazen was indeed a delight. It was instead about awareness and understanding of one's weaknesses, rather than the more conventional excuses for them, and that was transformational. The closer I looked, the deeper my weaknesses appeared, but that was much better than letting them lie.